Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this edition of the Food Focus Podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. Coming up on today's show, we've got a couple of brick-and-mortar grocery giants making plays towards even greater market share. We'll have news from the coffee industry via Farmer Brothers, and we'll talk about Cracker Barrel's latest earnings report. But first, this. You know about the perks that come with owning your own business, like financial freedom, being your own boss, and having more control of your time. But maybe you're just not sure where to start. Well, all of these perks could be yours if you decide to open a UPS Store franchise. UPS Store franchise offers stability, the support and reputation of a world-renowned brand, and 35 years of franchising experience and was just ranked number four top franchise to own by Entrepreneur Magazine's 2017 Franchise 500 list. Look now, and stores are available in large and small markets across the country, and their franchising experts will help you find a location that's just right. Plus, there's financing for those who qualify and special programs for military veterans. The time to promote yourself to business owner, if you haven't done so already, is now. Visit the upsstorefranchising.com slash focus to get started today. That's the upsstorefranchising.com slash focus. Well, we talked about Cracker Barrel, that legacy FSR and gift shop operator. Let's talk about their recent earnings. As They saw a beat on the bottom line, but a miss on their top line. Now, Cracker Barrel has been one of those FSRs that's actually outperformed some of the other companies in the industry. Between offering a robust dividend on their shares and offering same restaurant sales that have slowly increased in addition to building out to the West Coast, there's been a lot of positivity surrounding Cracker Barrel over the course of the last year, but lately there's been signs of some hiccups regarding Cracker Barrel as the company, like other FSRs, have been going through a little bit of an identity crisis over the last several months and trying to stem some of these slow traffic patterns that have cropped up through the midpoint of 2017. The company obviously publicly traded because we're talking about an earnings statement, but they have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders to grow in an exceptional way. And I think that the FSR space, as you touched on just now, Trent, is struggling mightily across this past one to two years. Even though some full-service restaurant chains are experiencing one to two to three percent gains in same-store sales, shareholders are wanting to see more. They're wanting to see a clear winner. And Cracker Barrel really isn't that. If you go back over the last couple of earnings calls. They really have struggled. And as you said, it's an identity crisis for them and their management team, but they seem to be on the right track. And we're going to talk about what they call a transformational period through this earnings call and some of the things they're doing as far as the experience their customers are getting in store and with their gift shop as well. First, we look at the financial results from Cracker Barrel, ticker CBRL. They reported their fourth quarter earnings Last Wednesday, they reported earnings per share of $2.23 per share. Consensus analyst estimates actually called for a little bit less than that, $2.18 a share. So a beat on net income on the earnings per share side of things. Fiscal 2017 earnings per share. Obviously, we have to talk about the full year because it is the fourth quarter. Those earnings per share numbers also beat company guidance. And CEO Sandra Cochran said that her expectations were beat mightily during this fourth quarter and for the full year as well. Top line revenue 
did miss a little bit. The company highlighted heavily in its call to investment groups on Wednesday and gave some reasons as to why that was. Fourth quarter revenues came in at $743.2 million. This represents that $8.8 million miss. This was on the back of comparable restaurant sales and comparable retail sales both decreasing 0.8% and 4.4% respectively year over year. As we head into the details, we can see that during this latest earnings season, the company, like we said, was trying to find its identity in an ever-changing FSR landscape. Previously, in the second quarter, we discussed the company is innovating and some of their different menu options and perpetually trying to improve its customer service. Customer service is actually something they talk about on every single call, and as they should, they are a full-service restaurant chain. To us, it felt as though the retail side was being inconsistently targeted and discussed as an improvement area for the business. Sometimes they would mention it, sometimes they would not. Now that we have the fourth quarter results in front of us, we can see that management has most likely or somewhat put the gift shop end of the operator on the back burner. And we see from the actual call, they said they executed on annualized cost reductions and operations efficiencies. And this seems to have driven a better than expected full year earnings per share number. I think they are shying away from the retail side, and this has given them a little bit more focus with the restaurant operations. President and CEO, again, Sandra Cochran, discussed regional management teams being an integral part of these efficiencies getting carried out. It seems as though the company has stepped up the level of quality of internal communication to all their functional management teams. These types of things are also more within their control as there are more and more FSRs competing and trying to attain market share gains. Perhaps this is the best way to utilize the company's resources in the short term at least and let some larger trends play out in hopes of being more flexible in the future to try to get on them. And this is one of the things we talk about all the time is internal communications with your regional managers. It, obviously, communication is number one, especially when you're trying to roll out new items on menus, trying to utilize some better customer service aspects of the business. I think right here you're seeing that not only have they revised some of the ways they communicate with their managers, but the managers are potentially holding those local managers more accountable and trying to relay the positive results in a productive manner regarding the cost reduction initiatives at the beginning of the fiscal year. Target reductions of annual operating costs look to be reduced by 15 to $20 million. The company apparently beat the top end of that guidance so far by roughly 15%. So you're saying cost reductions on an annualized basis coming in over $20 million for this operator. We've discussed Cracker Barrel's customer initiatives in the past, particularly as it pertains to the feel that customers get when they walk into the store. And the company feels that this warmth was certainly brought forth by employees on a store-by-store -store basis and assisted in what was for them a tough fourth quarter, although it's tough to tell certainly on a store-by-store -store basis. That is certainly the vibe that Cracker Barrel tries to impress upon all of their restaurant operators across their network is making sure that the Cracker Barrels feel similar from store to store. In this last quarter, they remain focused on maintaining their brand by marketing what they call the unique quality of their food. Cracker Barrel, at this point, if you're listening to this podcast, you're at least a little bit familiar with what they have. They rolled out a number of breakfast LTOs, including strawberry French toast and peppermill steak and eggs, very similar to what you would see at a different FSR, such as 
for example, Denny's or IHOP, only Cracker Barrel markets their goods as a little bit higher scale. And we've talked about their campfire meals in the past, where essentially these are foil-wrapped protein products that are served for dinner or lunch. What management is basically saying as they're talking about the food, they're not only trying to divulge new LTOs and new menu changes as a reason for continued sustainability of their financial proposition, but also they're passing along a message that relates to multiple segments of the population through their LTOs and food offerings. So in the conventional advertising, for instance, they want to make it clear that they have a vast array of dishes for all times of the day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and at a potentially better price offering than their competitors. When you look at competitors, especially interstate-bound restaurants such as Cracker Barrel, you think about Applebee's, you think about Chili's, owned by Brinker International, who we've talked about recently. And across the board, Cracker Barrel's menu prices do tend to be a little bit less expensive. But in the South, in particular with Cheddar's, who was recently bought by Darden Brands, Cheddar's could pose a threat to Cracker Barrel in this instance because of their scratch cooking methods and because of their brand equity that they've got should they choose to expand. You have to wonder if Cracker Barrel is seeing this but other competitors in the FSR space as a future problem. One of the other things that we felt like Cracker Barrel executed on well was some of their special summer marketing campaigns. They hoped these would bring in new customers. Ad spends, in fact, centered on the Hispanic population in some of their localized markets, especially in the South and in Texas. And this is something that's lost on a lot of FSRs we've talked about recently on the podcast. While management teams across the board get that all traffic is valuable, it's important to keep your core customer happy and at the same time offer new and exciting themes that may attract other customer groups. This is something that Olive Garden does quite a bit. They've talked about the ratios in terms of generational purchasing from their restaurants, whether it's to-go options or formal dining, as those tend a little bit younger. That's something that Cracker Barrel wants to look to by targeting in part that Hispanic population. Now, as far as their stores and their messaging going forward, they did open two new Cracker Barrel stores, bringing their total store count at fiscal year's end to 645 Cracker Barrel locations. They also have four Holler and Dash locations as well. Those locations are spread out across 44 states. We talked about in the last year their expansion to the West Coast in the Portland, Oregon metro area, and we're likely to see a little bit more of that, although not maybe as quickly as the company originally expected over the next couple of years because you do need some of that capital in order to expand out there on the West Coast, and they'll likely wait to make sure that some of these changes in terms of fiscal responsibility have taken hold before they begin to dump more capital on a additional stores. Some things they said will carry over to 2018. They mentioned brand loyalty. Everyone does awareness and also focus on their core customer. It was basically like a copy and paste FSR earnings report. Not a whole lot new in this earnings report for Cracker Barrel and basically a lot of lip service to shareholders as one might expect in this industry that's hit a bit of a speed bump. They want new customers to be repeat customers. As I mentioned, so does everyone. And really, Cracker Barrel's got to find additional differentiators going forward in order to continue to drive traffic up. Cracker Barrel shares were up 2% just after earnings to around 153 per share. Then back down in the following days. Now they're back up in the mid-152 dollars per share range. 
they offer a 3% dividend as well as a special dividend for those interested out there in buy and hold type companies. And the special dividend oftentimes is very lucrative for shareholders, sometimes coming in at 4 to $5 per share, usually hitting around the summer months. We move on to our second and last earnings story. This with a company we haven't yet talked about on the podcast. The Farmer Brothers Company released what ended up being their preliminary fourth quarter and full year fiscal 2007 earnings results on Tuesday of last week. The company was founded in 1912 and is mostly involved in what their company would indicate to some national coffee roasting, wholesaling, and distribution of coffee and tea. They also sell cappuccino mixes and spice blends. By sales, the company is fairly large with over $500 million in revenue last year and over $500 million in revenue this year. In the recent past, the company has undergone what the company has labeled a transformational year, and their product selection has reflected that. The company is a direct distributor of coffee to restaurants, hotels, casinos, offices, QSRs, convenience stores, and other providers in the healthcare sector. You see they also have a large private label brand extension that they offer to their retailers. Over the years, their portfolio of brands has included more sustainably sourced products as well as certain organic coffees. This is obviously something we have seen firsthand with a lot of retailers trying to actually capitalize on that push towards organic and all-natural selections. Coffee is going to be included in that. Portfolio features a wide variety of coffees, including Farmer Brothers, Artisan Collection by Farmer Brothers, Metropolitan, Superior, Canes, and McGarvey. One of those that really stands out to me is Canes. They've been around forever. Holding these types of brands is very valuable for Farmer Brothers Company as they can use these to leverage new brand offerings with their organic selections. As we delve into their quarterly results, you can see that the volume of what they call green ground coffee is expected to increase 0.9% year over year. Again, these are preliminary results. They couldn't actually finalize these quarterly results, but you can see that they are trending in a positive way. This volume is said to be the sold volume, not inventory in general. Volume increases for the full fiscal year up 5.3% to 90.7 million pounds. However, net sales for the company is looking to decrease. We talk about pricing pressure all the time as coffee is more and more commoditized. By 0.3%, net sales are decreased, and net sales for the full fiscal year decreased 0.5% to $541 million from fiscal 2016's level. Gross margin is perhaps the best metric for the company, as this will be expanding 100 basis points to 40.1%. While gross margins did expand, the company felt contracting net income as a result of some restructuring costs and other one-time corporate changes. You see that net income is expected to be approximately just $1.1 million. That's very low for a company that is so massive in terms of revenue. Fully diluted earnings per share is expected to be approximately $0.07 cents per share. You see that they are trying to drive through value trend. They're trying to generate a lot of cost savings in turn to be a little bit more profitable in the years to come. Again, a transformational period for this company, but a very vast portfolio at a time when people are drinking coffee and tea more than ever. They're drinking coffee and tea, but the problem for Farmer Brothers going forward is that people are constantly drinking finer and finer quality coffee and tea, where Farmer Brothers and Canes, for example, not seen to be in that area. And Canes in particular, Leighton, you mentioned, 
They've been around forever. They're in a number of grocery stores, of course. And where do we see that pricing pressure most right now? In grocery stores. Farmer Brothers and Canes also sells a lot to QSRs. We see a lot of price pressure, particularly on drinks right now in the QSR industry. And we see that borne out in these earnings results. One of the reasons why they're trying to drive internal value to increase their bottom line. They hope to generate 18 to $20 million in annualized savings from their headquarters relocation to Texas, which was a move that was initially criticized by some. And we've seen some businesses, in fact, move their headquarters to Texas. And because of the cost in moving headquarters to what some see as a tax-friendly state, you still have that upfront moving cost that can damage a company's bottom line. But they feel like it might provide them savings over a long period of time. Due to this move and other cost savings initiatives, they look to lower their pricing even more and increase gross margins at the same time. Management is hopeful that the anticipated lower pricing will attract new customers, including grocers, in a fight for that always competitive shelf space in the coffee section, and they hope that it will keep existing customers around as well. The company is also bullish on some of their recent acquisitions, having recently announced a deal to buy China Mist, which has been around since 1982. China Mist sells premium iced teas, so this will help to build out Farmer Brothers' tea portfolio. Management at Farmer Brothers, in fact, sees this as a natural extension, not only because of their existing tea selection and because of their existing coffee selection, but also because of their existing distribution network. So they can leverage this network to try and increase some of those sales on the iced teas from China Mix. Apparently, this broader product mix and the lower pricing is attracting more retail relationships for the company as well. Now, whatever benefit that does bring, again, will be muted by the price decreases. But even still, the Jackson Convenience Store chain recently signed a deal with Farmer Brothers. Jackson Convenience Store's 220 store chain in the Pacific Northwest. Additionally, Farmer Brothers is a new coffee supplier for 150 of SSP Group's U.S. retail locations and 24 different airports. SSP, for those who may not be aware, they're a British multinational company. They are headquartered in London, England, but they do have businesses at over 125 airports and 240 train stations throughout the world. SSP America, they operate 200 branded restaurants and food kiosks, as well as retail locations in 24 different airports throughout the U.S. And given the size of SSP, it's possible that this relationship with Farmer Brothers can actually grow for Farmer Brothers if the U.S. airport business proves successful. They've also been in talks with Target to be included in some of Target's Archer Farms products. Target's Archer Farms brand extension is, of course, their private label brand. And Leighton, what we talk about here is relationships, building out these relationships and ultimately this is what's going to build their top line revenue, whether they're partnering with companies like Target, seeking an answer to their private label products, or whether they're partnering with convenience stores, which is kind of their typical milieu. Networking is definitely an important facet of this company. And if you look at that pricing, that's an integral part. That's their business model right there, Trent, is that if you can have lower prices on both your teas and coffees to provide to your retailers, the retailers are going to be more and more interested. Time and time again, we talk of retailers like Target and Walmart pressuring their suppliers to always have the lowest prices possible. We're talking about scale here, and this is very important because the company's ultimate goal here with Farmer Brothers 
is to have economies of scale that will actually better their margins longer term. So not only can they offer these lower price products to the targets of the world, but they will actually be benefited too once they can strike these deals, these longer term deals, these gross margins will only increase. And it's very exciting to see a company that has struggled as of late increase gross margins and really say flat out, if we can have more of these partnerships, if we can have these partnerships turn into successful, larger, proven capabilities, that's only going to expand those 40% plus margins. As an example of this, cost of goods decreased most recently $1.6 million or 2% to $81.7 million compared to the fourth quarter last year. And this really leads the way in the reduction here. This gives the company's management something to eye in the future. They also cited supply chain efficiencies, which have played out well for the company. And supply chain efficiencies, something they're looking to have when they acquire a company like China Mist. Trent had talked about their excellent distribution network there. So the more companies you have in your portfolio, the more networks you have as far as the people that are buying your product, the better it's going to be for economies of scale. So all of it ties into cost savings for the company. And even though this was a relatively positive earnings call, shares of Farmer Brothers, ticker FARM, are down around 6% from this past week to around $30 a share, a trailing price-to-earnings ratio from the most recent earnings results for the full year, around 4.7. Market cap is actually representing less than one times revenue right now at $509 million. And Trent, I'm not an interested shareholder, but if I were, I would be looking at this company and really wonder, yes, it's going to be a profitable company going forward, but how much are they really trying to grow? And I think that's exactly why the price to earnings ratio is at where it's at. I don't think these shares are going to be trading at any crazy multiples anytime soon. As we mentioned at the top of the show, there are a lot of benefits with owning your own business, including financial freedom, having control of your time, and, and maybe having enough control of your time such that you can have a podcast. But maybe you're not sure where to start as far as entering the world of being a business owner. Maybe for you, opening a UPS store franchise is the solution. The UPS store has over 35 years of franchising experience and was just ranked the number four top franchise to own by Entrepreneur Magazine's 2017 Franchise 500 list. Stores are available for you in small and in large markets across the country, and their franchising experts will help you find a location that's just right. Plus, there's financing for those who qualify and special programs also for military veterans. The time to promote yourself to business owner could be now. Visit the UPS store franchising com slash focus to get started today that's the ups store franchising.com slash focus well we move now to brick and mortar groceries in a note to its customers on tuesday walmart's online grocery orders will now be accepting ebt funds from a variety of food assistance programs now walmart had already accepted snap and wick program ebt cards previously but not through omni-channel or e-commerce digital transactions, which is an important differentiation here. And by accepting EBT funds from these food assistance programs in e-commerce digital transactions, Walmart may be able to potentially snap up some digital market share that currently doesn't exist, as a lot of other businesses don't offer EBT platforms. And some, in fact, have speculated that this is an effort to regain market share from Amazon, Amazon started accepting forms of payment through EBT cards during the first week of June this year, but when Amazon rolled this out, 
They also reduced the amount qualified Prime members would have to pay for that monthly fee. It was $5.99 a month versus $10.99 a month. At the same time, Walmart's grocery business, especially in the e-commerce realm and their ability to deliver the buy online, pick up and store options makes this huge news for a retailer that's already seen digital sales grow by 60% year over year. For Walmart, this is a natural progression that many retailers have been making, meaning that retailers are having to adopt all new forms of payment, whether that is Samsung Pay, Apple Pay, Android Pay, or accepting all forms of pay should mean more top line revenue. And for Walmart, this was a natural progression too in that they actually get a large share of food stamps coming through their brick and mortar already. According to a report from the Wall Street Journal in 2013 that was verified also by other independent sources, Walmart claims to have taken in roughly 18% of all food stamp dollars in the U.S. in 2012. And they said this number would only increase as the recipient count would go up. Walmart has spent a lot of money on government lobbying efforts to ensure that there are limited exclusions given on these types of programs, but they have also advocated for healthier meals as well for needy families. So they are all in on these SNAP programs, and obviously this is something they've had for quite some time in their brick-and-mortar setting, but this was going to be something they had to compete with Amazon with. Obviously, there's a lot of these programs that are popping up, and anytime you can meet your customer it's a very good benefit for you. It's almost a detriment to those customers that were trying to use online grocery pickup previously, but then could not pay for it once they got there. According to the program specifics from Walmart's official blog post, Walmart intends on somewhat slowly rolling this program out to its online grocery pickup customers. EBT cards can be used for those that are paying when they pick up their orders. So there does not seem to be a system in place for paying ahead of time on your smartphones, more of a digital transaction. Furthermore, the company is targeting just a few locations in which to pilot the program. The Houston area was highlighted as well as four locations in Boise, Idaho. And you see that these locations are going to be slowly rolled out as they prove this program out. The one question I had leading into this was, why isn't this a more extensive program these two areas are very far away from each other, and they're only talking about five locations thus far. Furthermore, the company says that it's looking to expand the number of locations. This is going to be based off the successful rollout, whether these programs are going to be seeing higher adoption rates. They're saying that the holiday season, as it gets closer, they plan on rolling out to other locations throughout the United States. The overall mission seems to be increasing convenience to everyone in the online grocery pickup platform, not just those paying via conventional methods. And again, we talk about the delay here. Amazon had rolled this delivery service out with Amazon Fresh in some parts of the country in the first week of June of this year. So why couldn't they do the same? All we can really do, Trent, is speculate here, but Walmart has a lot of potential locations to be affected by this rollout. And with that comes bureaucratic differences. Obviously, there's going to be different paperwork, different things to have to fill out. With these types of different programs, we would probably not be able to even understand a tenth of what Walmart has to do to get this approved. Anytime you are dealing with government benefits, it is important to make sure everything is laid out within the guidelines. Perhaps they were also making sure that their IT infrastructure was in place before going for an all-out rollout. And to see a potential surge in demand, the last thing they would want is for this infrastructure to fall out. Although we doubt it couldn't really process these types of payments as, again, they already do in their brick and mortar setup. 
And the thing about Walmart is with these technologies and these various EBT programs in all 50 states, each state has a little bit of a different program. As someone who's actually gone through and assisted businesses or been working for businesses that have to adhere to these guidelines, they can be Byzantine. But Walmart has people in place who already understand these guidelines, perhaps more so even than a business like Amazon, who doesn't have a robust brick-and-mortar presence. Even something like Whole Foods, they don't have that wide of a brick-and-mortar presence so as to understand and specialize in these aspects in every single state. Again, when we talk about Amazon purchasing Whole Foods, we're talking about less than a tenth of the number of locations Walmart has nationwide. So again, Walmart's going to specialize in these areas in much more of a robust way. They've got people on staff to handle this type of thing. And in terms of a bigger overall take, in our comparisons, Walmart's e-commerce prices for groceries seem to be much better than Amazon's. Amazon's EBT acceptance is based around delivery, and that does carry an additional cost. So if you're looking at pinching pennies, if you're a part of an EBT program, Walmart seems to be the winner in this case. However, Walmart's programs still require people to drive up to the store and spend that time in terms of mobilizing. And in addition, that's to assume that everyone here has a vehicle to drive to the store. So sometimes driving to the store can be onerous because you have to take public transit or something like that. So there are a lot of other factors that could actually push people towards Amazon and away from Walmart, despite the fact that Walmart is the cheaper option. However, in the future, delivery may be rolled out with Walmart outside of its small pilot programs in different parts of the country, Colorado and Arizona, two states that come to mind. And they might be able to do this with a low annual fee for everyone, including SNAP and WIC recipients. And keep in mind, Walmart, during their latest investor day in their conference in Northwest Arkansas, they mentioned the possibility, perhaps in the future, of employees being able to take orders with them on their way home and deliver them. That gives Walmart some more optionality, and they can roll it out then in rural areas that Amazon can't even think about touching right now with grocery delivery, especially with items where spoilage is an issue. Right now, accessibility is the key. With groceries, accessibility means three basic concepts. First, how are you getting the physical groceries? Are you going in, sitting outside the store and having them delivered to your car? Are you sitting at home? How are you paying? Are you paying via phone, card, cash, in person? You know, again, sitting at home. And then product selection. And this is the most obvious one that's getting overlooked by those, including a ton of analysts out there who are praising Amazon's platform. Perhaps the most valuable asset that Amazon got with Whole Foods was a reliable and well-known product mix, including private label products. The reality of it is, though, grocers like Walmart, like Kroger, have that build-out already of not just one private label brand, but several across multiple different pricing structures. And really, it's the benefit of product selection that people are looking to with Walmart in addition to cost over Amazon. And that's one of the reasons why we're not necessarily that bullish on Amazon's grocery program. We talk about price cuts at Whole Foods. Also, with Amazon taking over, the reality of it is it's not touching a lot of the prices there at Whole Foods. So again, Walmart's got a number of bullets in their gun in order to try and fend off Amazon in the grocery industry. And right now, despite their acquisition of Whole Foods and despite the bullishness of so many analysts in the U.S. regarding Amazon's grocery future, we just can't find it within ourselves to be as bullish about Amazon taking over the grocery industry as some.
Well, we just got done talking about grocery delivery and customer service within the grocery arena. Albertsons has officially bought meal kit delivery service Plated in a deal announced just before we recorded this podcast. Both companies are privately held, so we won't know the purchase price details. However, we do know the deal is being brokered by Credit Suisse. Overall, this seems to be a win-win for both companies. Although popular meal kit delivery services aren't always profitable, as we've seen with Blue Apron as they recently went public. And we talked about them on the podcast when they were coming out with their IPO. Since that IPO, Blue Apron recorded a massive loss in their most recent fiscal quarter and has recorded yearly losses pretty much every year of their existence. They did have to disclose some of that previous financial information when they recorded their IPO, when they had that application there. And for Plated, you can see right now, it's a company that has been around since 2012. So they're no stranger to this space. And their service is fairly similar to that of Blue Apron or any other competitor for that matter. And if you look on their website, you can see the different plans they have. And it may fit better for those who want to be a little bit more flexible with these meal plans. But the pricing is very similar. And based off their website, I'll go in and explain some of the different meal plans that they have. With two servings per night, they have options of two meals, three meals, and four meals per night. And you see that an average meal costs around $10 to $12. Again, right in line with their competitors there. The differentiation with Plated could be that they are looking to take advantage of food from different parts of the country. For instance, on the first page of their website, they offer meals from different countries such as Italy, Morocco, the United States. But in different parts of the United States as well, for instance, right now they have a California section where you can get different meals for different nights of the week. And also along with that for new customers, you get 50% off your first week for plated. So obviously they are well versed in the marketing realm. They have what pretty much everybody else has. But what is the key differentiator that Albertsons potentially sees here with this meal kit delivery service? A lot of social media outlets describe this as a brick and mortar scrambling to catch up. But that's not necessarily what's really happening here. And it's not so much what Albertson sees in this particular meal delivery service, but it's the fact that this particular meal delivery service was willing to sell for Albertsons. As we could certainly surmise that Albertsons was looking to get into this industry for a while and vertically integrate with a meal delivery service including offering some of these meal delivery kits in store, much as what Kroger's done. But where Kroger is starting their system in scratch and in-house, now Albertsons has the benefit of the plated infrastructure that's already in place. And additionally, the significant competition, as Leighton mentioned, among meal delivery services and the recent Blue Apron IPO and the release of their fiscal numbers that was looked down upon by many on the market, likely kept the purchase price down here. Blue Apron is thought to be the leader in this industry, and they certainly are in terms of subscriptions and revenue. But the bottom line is they don't have a robust bottom line. And we can surmise that Plated perhaps was in the same boat. Considering Blue Apron's struggles, we can also assume that Plated was likely in some sort of financial hardship without additional capital influx. And these businesses, many of them have gone out and gotten a lot of VC. But when you start running out of that VC, time begins to tick down and you either have to sell as what Plated's done here or go for an IPO as what Blue Apron has done or shutter altogether if you cannot make good on your promise to those venture capitalists. We also know that Albertsons has been seeing widespread operational success based on 
the dividend that showed up in Kimco's latest earnings report. For those who might not have listened to that episode of The Retail Focus, Kimco cashed in on their stake in Albertsons to the extent that we feel Albertsons margins are very high of a company of their size in terms of the grocery industry. And while they are private, we don't know same-store sales, their dividend to Kimco has increased, meaning that at the very least, they are more efficient, generating more money on their bottom line so they can return it to, in this case, Kimco, who is one of Albertson's main shareholders. So it's not a story, as Leighton mentioned, was being reported where brick-and-mortar is scrambling to catch up to meal delivery services. The reality of it is Albertson's is likely more profitable than Plated could ever dream of being, and this partnership works out for plated because they get obviously the money right away from Albertsons and the purchase price. They get to operate as a subsidiary of Albertsons. So again, they're not just being absorbed into the company itself. They get to operate as a subsidiary. Many people get to stay on board with Albertsons. There aren't a lot of synergies in terms of eliminating staff and that type of thing. And meanwhile, Albertsons gets to tap into an infrastructure that was already created in Plated. Plated now gets to tap into the back end of Albertsons infrastructure. And also Albertsons stores can be used to manufacture the Plated meals since they have certified food processing facilities in nearly every one of their Albertsons and Safeway stores in the U.S. So this is a win all the way around. This deal makes sense. It's not as simple as just a brick and mortar retailer scrambling because again, Albertsons has been fairly successful based on the data that we have. Plated is a great option for Albertsons to kind of bring in-house. And as a general note here, we find the recent negativity in the grocery space to be far overblown. This is something we've touched on from time to time on Retail Focus. Kroger's traffic and sales for same stores both went up in the last quarter, despite some analysts out there saying otherwise, which is interesting because Kroger said it right in their earnings release and it's borne out in the numbers. Walmart and Walmart Neighborhood Market continue to drive both traffic gains and positive same store sales, including grocery. And both Albertsons and Aldi and Trader Joe's are reportedly fairly successful. And based on the financials that we have access to through Kimco for Albertsons, this has certainly been borne out to be the case. Additionally, when you look at some of the digital competitors, Amazon, who everyone is talking about, disrupting grocery and disrupting the retail world, their forays into brick-and-mortar grocery have been very limited before their purchase of Whole Foods, and many of them could even be called unsuccessful And we should keep in mind Whole Foods only owns less than 2% of the U.S. grocery market share. So it's not like Amazon exactly bought a superstar here. In fact, Whole Foods was having their own struggles. So in this deal, to kind of sum it up, we're fairly bullish on Albertson's acquisition here. It's not necessarily, in this case, about differentiation for Plated because the very fact that Plated Meals will now be available in Albertson's and Plated can tap into Albertson's large distribution network kind of builds in that differentiator. So this is a match made in heaven, and I would expect this to be fairly successful for both companies now going forward. Well, we've reached the final segment of the Food Focus podcast, a segment we call What We Ate, where each Leighton and I talk about an item that we tried that's new to us or new to the world of food or drink in the last week. And we begin with Leighton. As it normally happens, I tried a snack food, Trent, and this snack food was actually brought to me by Back to Nature Foods, a company that was recently just reported on by us being bought by B&G Foods. Back to Nature was bought for around $162.5 million thanks to their portfolio of foods that resemble a lot of their competitors' products. And this is interesting because my product is just that. It's basically a cheese it knockoff. Cheese it for those of you who probably are aware, 
is a Kellogg Company brand. And this back to nature, crispy cheddar crackers, this is very similar to me. If we're going to be talking about taste, this was the first time I've actually tried these crackers from Back to Nature. It is a bit more of a cheese taste, oddly enough. It is a little bit more natural of a product if you look at the ingredient list. And it's slightly less salty. So while there is salt within these crackers, it is a little bit lesser than you would find in a conventional Cheez-It. As for that one pouch, it's a 130 calories, 4.5 grams of fat. Not bad. Again, comparable to the Kellogg Cheez-It. And where I bought them was Big Lots. I got a five-pack, actually. It looked to be on sale. One-ounce bags, five one-ounce bags for around a $4 price point. Something that is a little bit more pricey than the Cheez-It, but a little bit more tasty, in my humble opinion. Well, two shows ago, I tried the Oktoberfest-style beer from Shiner, and I had mentioned that Bob's 47 was my favorite Marzen style or Oktoberfest style. Well, I tried something this last week that could give Bob's 47 from Boulevard a run for its money. Every year, Sierra Nevada reaches out and brews an Oktoberfest or a Marzen style beer with a German brewer or in collaboration with a German brewer. This year, that brewer is Brauhaus Miltenberger. One of the interesting things about Sierra Nevada is we talk so much this show about differentiators, and that's exactly what Sierra Nevada is looking for going forward. They and Sam Adams have been struggling somewhat to move cases of beer as you have all of these new and smaller brewers entering kind of that craft beer space. And this is one of the ways in which Sierra Nevada can really set themselves apart is through these type of partnerships. This year's Oktoberfest from Sierra Nevada is actually lighter in terms of body, but it's got robust flavor. And I think it's this balance that really sets it apart. It's got a rich caramel taste from the malt. The hoppiness is perfect. It's a perfect balance for it. It's not overhopped for an Oktoberfest of this style like some other U.S. brewers tend to do. And rather, it's an excellently balanced beer. It's 6.1% alcohol by volume. And the unfortunate part about it, it's only available this year. So people have a limited time to try it. I do recommend picking up a six-pack if you're A, of age, and B, if you happen to see it around. But again, Sierra Nevada's 2017 Oktoberfest done in partnership with Brauhaus Milton Burger, definitely worth a try. That'll do it for us here on the Food Focus Podcast. For Layton, I'm Trent. Coming up this Friday on the Retail Focus Podcast, we'll have a look ahead to shop.org, a fantastic interview with Monica Kocher of Smart Gift. We'll talk about some of the gifting momentum and new ways to gift in terms of e-commerce. We'll also discuss a recent study that found that retail holiday sales this year could increase by around 4%, which very much flies against a lot of the momentum you see if you just read the headlines out there. So we'll delve into that study. We'll have that fantastic interview coming up this Friday. Big thanks to the UPSstorefranchising.com slash focus where you can go to learn about owning your own UPS store franchise. We'll be back in two days with Retail Focus and next week with a fresh new Food Focus. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.